All right, we're gonna continue our series called Won't You Be My Neighbor. I'm on vacation right now, but I wanted to record this message because I really had it kind of burning in my heart and burning in my spirit. And so I, I hope that this blesses you guys today. Last week, we talked about, uh, we introduced the series of Won't You Be My Neighbor, and we talked about how to be a neighbor in the area of our friendships. And so this week, we're going to ask that question again. In Luke chapter 10, verse 29, it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so we, we talk about there's different areas of our life that we have different neighbors in. One was friendship. Today we're going to be looking at something a little more close to home, the area of family. Now, how many of you guys know that families are messy? How many of you guys have had that family photo moment where everything, when you finally took the photo, it looked fine, looked like everybody loved each other, or at least liked each other, or could stand each other. But then if you zoom out just a little bit, you could see that things, I mean, kids were crying, kids were falling, you got them barely just there to be able to take the picture. Because families can be messy sometimes. We see that all throughout the scriptures. We see Jacob, who was like a patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how he was the father of the 12 uh, nations, basically, or the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, rather. And, and yet there was a very messy family going on there. They had all kinds of mess. The brothers were upset with Joseph because Joseph was one of the favorites, and they, they sold him into slavery. They faked his death. They had literal blood on their hands from when they tried to fake his own death. And so their family was just messy. Now, here's the tragedy about families. Families are really supposed to display and portray the, the story of God. And I mean, we see that even uh, in other parts of scripture, how husbands and wives are supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. And families, we got to understand something about families. Families even came before anything else. I mean, families came before God's people uh, were, were established. Family came before nations. Family even came before the church. So family is a really big deal to God. And if Satan can derail your family, he can derail your purpose, at least for a season. If he can derail your family in some area, he can de delay or distract or derail your purpose. And we've all felt this from time to time. But as we look at scripture, there's all sorts of messes in family. We look at uh, the first family that one of their sons killed the other one. And that's not a good perfect family, church-going family, is it? We, we see uh, how Abraham, he offered his wife to another man, uh, to another man in, in Scripture. We see how Jacob's sons were trying to kill each other off and how that was a big mess. We see how David had an affair and his son tried to start a rebellion against him. It just wasn't picture perfect. We see how Eli, one of the priests, lost control of his own sons in church, and they were basically pastor kids that were just going crazy. And so families can be messy. And so anybody, let me just say right off that anybody who says they've got this family thing all figured out, either they're probably hiding something or they've just had their first baby and they think they've got it all figured out because we know that families can just be messy. But before we go any further, I want to do something I feel like is really important. And I want to set up a theology or at least a, an idea about offense and conviction, because these are really deep topics, because I think we have this idea sometimes, uh, and a picture about Jesus, that Jesus is just like, he's always just in this long flowing robe, he's got feathered back hair that's like perfectly been conditioned, and he's got just children are just hanging around him all the time, that he's got a lamb just snuggling up a lamb, you know, he's just snuggling on a lamb for a while, and just, just that's the picture we have of Jesus sometimes. That's really what the world wants Jesus to be. Just a nice, 
teacher, a nice uh, person, a good example, somebody who never offends people. And so when we look at scripture though, we see a totally different picture because do you realize that Jesus offended people all of the time? And this is important for what we're gonna be talking about today. Jesus offended people all the time. And yet, the Bible says that Jesus did not sin. Now, how many of you guys are good at offending people, right? Some of us have this, what, quote-unquote, spiritual gift. We think it's a spiritual gift. No, it's not a spiritual gift, but there is something important to learn here. Jesus offended people all the time. Let me just run down a few of the people that Jesus offended. Number one, he offended the Pharisees, the religious people of the day. Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 through 8. He says this, he says, you hypocrites. That's not a good way to make friends. Well, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He said, you religious people, your heart is far from God. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Again, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. How many of you guys know that Jesus offended those people, all of Matthew chapter 23, he's offending them. He calls them names. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them vipers. He calls them all sorts of stuff. Jesus offended people all the time, and yet he did not sin. He offended, number two, he offended the disciples, his own disciples. He said this, he went into this, this series called Whoever Feeds on My Flesh and Drinks My Blood series. Okay, he went on that message, and he says uh, in John chapter 6, the disciples, when they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, Jesus. They said, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And of course, many of them did. Skip down to verse 66. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, he turns around to the 12. He says, do you guys want to go away as well? And they said, Simon Peter said, look, Lord, to whom would we go? We've got nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. And so Jesus, whenever he preached up the crowds, he also had a way of preaching down the crowds. And he offended his own disciples, his own followers, and yet did not sin. It goes even further than that. In, in Matthew chapter 13, he offended his whole hometown and his family. Okay, In verse 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this great man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the mother? Uh, uh, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph? Like we know this guy, Simon and Judas. And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? <clears throat> verse 57, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. He offended not only the religious leaders, not only his disciples, his whole hometown, his family, but it even goes further than that. Jesus offended his friends. Lazarus was dying and some of these are some of his close friends and Mary and Martha and Lazarus and they send word to Jesus and to his disciples saying, Lazarus is dying. Come quick. You could save his life. And so what did Jesus do? He rushed over there. No, he didn't do that. He waited a couple more days. And so much that Lazarus then dies. And then finally, Jesus shows up on the scene to his friends. In John chapter 11, verse 32, it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
So Jesus offends uh, his, his hometown, his family, his disciples, his followers, the religious leaders of the day, his own friends. See, sometimes uh, some people get offended at religious leaders or maybe even pastors. You've been offended at different people uh, and, or leadership when they don't do what we expect. Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do at all. Jesus went through all of this. But let me just say it this way. Jesus loves us enough to offend us from time to time. Let me say that again. Jesus loves us enough to offend us from time to time. In fact, let me just put it this way. I should offend you from time to time. Because sometimes the word of God comes off initially as offensive to us. Sometimes the topics we have to deal with, like if I preach on a difficult topic, and for some people it's different than others. It may be giving for one person. It may be family like we're going to talk about today for another person. It may be on sharing your faith for another. But there, there are going to be times when I should offend you. And if my preaching doesn't offend you from time to time, then you're probably not listening very closely because there are going to be times when we hear something that doesn't, we have to wrestle with from time to time. And why is this important? Because I'm going to be talking about family today. And I, I just believe that our families, the way that we live our life, our marriages, the way we do marriage, the way we raise our kids, the way we handle our life and our schedule, it ought to be countercultural. It ought to offend the world from time to time. It ought to look different. It ought to go against the grain. And if your life isn't offensive from time to time, I'm not talking about intentionally trying to hurt. I'm just saying going against the grain, then you may not be living a Christ-like life because Jesus wasn't always just snuggling lambs. <laughs> he actually had to live out the hard truth. And so that's what we, we're going to look at today. And here's what I've discovered. Sometimes offense and conviction feel the same. And so what I want you to do today is I want you to consider, as I begin to talk about some difficult things that may touch some nerves with us, I want you to consider the possibility. What if you're not being offended? What if the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction in some area of our life? Because these people walked away offended from Jesus, but really the issue was, were they really offended by something Jesus did or said? Or was it really more that the conviction of the Holy Spirit was there and they just weren't responding to it. So I just want you to, as we walk through this, to, to consider that possibility. And so we're going to look back at the original place where we see this love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart stuff is at in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And we can see some areas that we can walk out being a neighbor to those close to us, our family. We can see it practically. In verse 4 it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them. Here we go. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." So we're going to break this down real quick, practically, on how we can live this out with our family. So imagine with me that you're in your own house, that you're sitting around your table. Let's go there in our imagination and see how this looks practically. All right, so let's take that very first part there. Point number one is when you sit in your house. 
And so let's just imagine, like, like I said, just imagine that you're there sitting around. I just imagine sitting at the family dinner table. Everybody's gathered around, and we're going to wrestle with what that really looks like. So in our story, Jesus has been talking about the Good Samaritan story. We talked about that last week. And, and the, the lawyer who was testing Jesus asked, who's my neighbor? And at the very end of the story, in Luke chapter 10, verse 36, says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said to him, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, here was the challenge for this guy. See, the, the problem with the Pharisees at the time is that they had a pretty big problem. They preached one thing, but they lived another thing. They preached one thing, but it really wasn't happening in their own life. And that's really what I want us to wrestle with. And this is really where it can be kind of challenging to think about. And, and here's the question. I've, I've thrown this out there before, but I want to challenge us with it again. And here, here's the question. Are we promoting a product that we don't use? And what am I talking about? I'm talking about, I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about this life following after Jesus. Are we promoting that and saying that we believe in Jesus? We say that, that grace happened. We say that we're people who believe scriptures, but are we promoting that? Is that just a label or is that something that actually happens? Because we only really know where it happens. If it's not happening at home, it's not happening. If, if grace isn't happening at home, it's not happening. If love isn't happening at home, are we promoting a product that we don't use? See, what happens is, if it's not happening at home, what happens is we either become hypocrites and try to, just like the Pharisees were, and, and we try to put on this front that, hey, all this stuff is good, we're following Jesus, loving, loving everything, and, and we put on this front, we become hypocrites, or we just stop promoting it altogether, and we just kind of give up, take a back seat, just tone down uh, how we're, we're living our lives, and so that's really what I want to wrestle with, and I'm not talking about perfection, I'm not talking about we've got to be perfect people, uh, but I am asking the question, are we using the product, are, are, does Jesus Jesus have any relevancy when we're sitting there at our house, not just at church, but when we're sitting at our home, is Jesus relevant? And so again, Jesus goes and he, he talks to these Pharisees, like we looked at earlier in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean, listen, to, look at this picture. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. So imagine you go to your kitchen cupboard and you pull out and the outside of the bowl looks really, really good. But then you, you look inside and there's like leftovers in there. I mean, like three day leftovers in there. That's what Jesus is painting the picture of. He's like, it doesn't matter how clean the outside of the bowl is if the inside is not good. He says, you blind Pharisee, first clean the, outside, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly they appear beautiful, but within the tombs are full, they're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear to be righteous to others. And in other words, outside, when you're at church, you appear to be righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so what Jesus does here is he introduces this, this powerful uh, principle that the unseen is actually more powerful than the visible. That what we can't see actually becomes more important than what we actually can see. 
Uh, I was riding with, uh, I was driving in my vehicle not too long, well, it was a few years ago, and Lindsay, my youngest daughter, Lindsay, she had the window rolled down. She's got her head out the window. I mean, her hair is just blowing in the wind, and she looks over at me, and she says, Daddy, how come we can't see the wind? And, you know, you get questions like that from kids all the time. But then she goes further. She said, how come we can't see the wind's color? And I was like, I don't know if I've ever thought about the wind having a color or not having a color. But I just simply said that we, can, we can't see the wind, but we can see the effects of it. And we know that it, there's, there's things that the wind does and it's important and all those sorts of things. And, and the same is true in other areas of our life, that we can't see certain things with our natural eyes, like DNA or atoms or whatever you want to call it. But there are some things like love that we can't see with our natural eyes. But how many of you guys know that love is extremely important? Love is powerful. And so Jesus introduces this thing that, that the unseen is more important or more powerful than the visible. And so let's apply this to this topic that uh, what I'm saying is that our home life, the way, the way things look at home are way more important than the way things look in public. See, th there's this whole idea that the private it's before public, that the things that happen in private, the faithfulness in private leads to fruitfulness in public. I've shared this story before, but uh, several years ago, there's this guy who felt like he was called to the ministry. He was called to preach, uh, but he didn't have any opportunities to do so. And so the only opportunity he had was to be a janitor at a church. And so he just decided that he was going to just be faithful where he was at. And so he would vacuum the floors to the glory of God. He would go in and he would preach to the empty pews as he was cleaning up the thing. He would go into the toilets. He would pray over the toilets and he would say, Lord, the people who sit on these toilets, may you move through their life. He was casting out things like when they come into this place, let, let you move in their life. And he's, I mean, he's just like, I'm going to pray. Like I'm in the ministry right now. I'm going to pastor these toilets. I'm going to pastor these empty seats. And now he preaches to thousands of people. And the thing is, I don't think to God, it mattered whether he was preaching to toilets or to people. The fact of the matter is that he was faithful in both. See, faithfulness in private is what leads to fruitfulness in public. So if it ain't working at home, it's not working. If it's not working behind closed doors, it's not working. Are we promoting a product that we don't use? You see, uh, what would you do if God asked you, like in this next season of your life, I want you to go, you to go into it, and I want you to just walk by faith. You only have one pair of clothes, um, only uh, just no money in the bank account, drain the bank account, and I want you to live as if I am your source. Now, how many of you guys have said before, yes, God is my source. I trust God to supply all my needs. But very few of us would act in that way, really trusting that God is our source. Because here's the truth, that many times our actions expose our beliefs. See, we can say what we believe all we want, but it's really our actions that expose it. And James chapter 1, verse 22 says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So in other words, it's saying this, do what you believe. So uh, we can say that we follow Jesus. We can say we love Jesus. We can say our family follows after Jesus. But really, when we look at the ground, at behind closed doors, what does that actually look like? Are we doing what we say we believe? So again, when we sit down in our house, is this relevant? Is Jesus relevant? Or are we promoting a product that we don't use? All right, so let's look at the very next thing. All right, point number two is when you walk by the way. And I look at this as our calendar. 
Here's our calendar, nice cute puppy on the calendar. It's kind of the hub of activity around our house. We have to coordinate it all. Uh, sometimes when we talk about calendar, we may think like a calendar is just like so earthly that it's not very spiritual. But calendars, that idea of a calendar and, and structure and the rhythm of week to week and year to year is very spiritual. I mean, we could talk about the Hebrew calendar with all the feasts and with all the festivals. We could talk about the Christian calendar of Advent and Easter and Pentecost and all of those things. We could talk about God. I mean, the Sabbath is part of a regular rhythm of a calendar uh, and on and on and on. So a calendar, the idea of this is, so, is very spiritual. And so is Jesus relevant when we walk by the way, when we're going through our day, when we're going through the, the year to year, the week to week, the month to month? This is why this is important for us. Luke chapter 6, verse 40 says this, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why is this important? What does this have to do with the calendar? Because the way we spend our time, the environments we're in, the experiences that we're exposed to, the people we're around, they become our teachers. So let me give you some statistics I heard a while ago. Uh, as far as the average uh, dad will spend about three minutes per day in meaningful conversation. The average mom will spend about six minutes in meaningful conversation with a kid. So that's a total of about 2.25 24-hour days out of 365 in a year. Okay, you got that two, just two and a quarter days. If you add up all that time out of a whole year is spent with meaningful conversation with parents. All right, so church. Now, if you go three times a week, which I know nobody does that anymore, but if you did three times a week, one hour each time, and your kids were involved in church, Three times a week. Some of us can't do three times a month even, or even once a month sometimes. But three times a week, that's, that it adds up to a total of about 6.5 total days out of the 365 in church. School, you got about 180 days of school, give or take, about six hours or so. That adds up to about 45 total days out of the 365. The average kid uh, between 8 to 18 consumes about 7.5 hours of media time. I think that number is really low, but let's just go with that. Seven point hours a day of media time. So add it up. Here's what it looks like. 114 days of media time. Total out of the 365, 45 days of school, six days of church, and 2.25 days in meaningful conversations with you guys as parents. How many guys know we're up against it? I mean, we, we've got a, a, a problem when it comes to the environment and the, the time that we have. The most controversial, the, the thing I've preached about before when I started to step on some toes with like the, the sporting events and the time that we take our kids and get them in all sorts of youth activities that we feel like we're together but we're disconnected. I'd even go so far as to call it the false god of youth sports in our country because it has elevated itself above. I mean, we're for sure to get them in sports, but we'd, we're, we're not so concerned about getting them in the right environment like church. And so... If we, become a, if we become like our teacher and we're not concerned with getting them in the right environments, there's a problem there. And we've got to look at our calendars. And, and I'd say it this way, that families can run the risk, listen to this, of being experientially rich and relationally poor. Families can run the risk of being experientially rich yet relationally poor. 
I mean, imagine if you, you're just having a baby and, and, and you're, you're just starting out as a family and you got 18 to 20 years or so as they're growing up in your home and you get everything right. I mean, you teach them how to handle their money. You teach them how to, how to you know, say yes, sir, and thank you. And you'd go through all these things. You get them in the right environments. You get them disciplined. But yet at the end of the 20 years, you had no relationship with the child. How, how sad would that be? And yet so many times when we look at the way we're living our lives, that's what we're doing with our kids and especially with their relationship with God. We get them in so many, we get it right in so many areas of the world and and even godly things of how to handle your money and how to handle relationships that we haven't stewarded on our calendar or in our life or in our home time, that relationship with God. And that's why it's so important for us to look at because I believe that if we want to walk with Jesus, and here's where it's really going to be challenging. If we want to walk with Jesus as families, we have to slow down. Jesus walked everywhere when he was on the planet. They say the average human can walk about three miles per hour. Sometimes we've got to slow down to catch up with Jesus' pace. Because Jesus invites us into this life that's so beautiful that he says his burden is easy, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And so many of us are burned down with so much busyness, we can't slow down to catch up with Jesus, the life that he's called us to live. That's why when I went on sabbatical, uh, man, everything was quiet and everything slowed down for six weeks. You know what happened during that time? All of a sudden, real priorities rose to the surface because of clarity, because I slowed down. Down. I heard this quote not too long ago. It says this, The servant of the Lord is not like a pipe where God flows through. He's more like a bowl. You have to wait until it's full before you pour it out. So many of us are running on empty, and I just want to challenge you in your family life. We say, let me just talk to dads here for a second. You say your family is a priority, and you maybe you mean that in your heart. But listen, it doesn't really matter how much we say our family is a priority until they actually feel like they are the priority that we say that that they are. So I just challenge you, prioritize this calendar. Maybe we need to take a step back and look at things all over again. Maybe you need to ask this question. I challenge you, ask this question to your spouse. Ask this question to your kids. And this is kind of a dangerous question, but I challenge you to ask it anyway. Listen to this. What kind of change in my schedule would really make you feel like the priority that I say that you are? What kind of change in my schedule would make you feel like the priority that I have told you that you are? Now, let me take it a step further. What if we would go before God and we'd say, God, what kind of change in my calendar would make you feel like the priority that I say that you are? Again, this is very, very challenging stuff, but would we be so bold to live lives that are countercultural? Are we promoting a product that we don't use? Jesus invites us into this beautiful life. All right, so let's look at the last thing. All right, the last thing as we close is this, is when you lie down and when you rise. And I look at this as like a spiritual alarm clock that goes off. See, there ought to be something on the inside of us that is like a wake-up call from time to time. Like we're looking at our schedules, We're looking at the family. We're looking at our marriage. We're looking at our relationships. Do you realize it's okay to have a wake-up call? It's okay to have this moment where you're saying, okay, we need a reset. 
We've got to change some things. We've got to rearrange some things. And we've got to have that from time to time in, in our built in, in into our seasons and schedules of life. See, there's many times in, in my life and in our family's life when, when maybe circumstances change or maybe the kids go into a different season and we have to reevaluate how do we operate in this season. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 23 uh, says this. It says, uh, 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, there's brand new seasons and brand new days every single morning. So maybe this has been kind of a message where you kind of have a wake-up call. Maybe you're, you, you need a reset in some area. I just want you to know it's okay to do that because if grace isn't happening at home, it's really not happening that much. If love isn't happening at home, it's, it's probably, it's just on a stage outside of that. If forgiveness isn't happening at home, it's just, it's probably not happening and very much in our lives to the degree we want it to happen. And so it's okay if we have a wake up call from time to time. And maybe today is it for many people. I want to have the worship team come up at this point. And as they do, you may be saying, okay, well, what do I do? I'm just going to give you a couple thoughts uh, just to leave you with. And the first one is simply this, just to pray. Pray for those in your immediate circle. Don't just pray when there's a crisis. Don't just pray when something goes wrong. Pray in the good times. Pray for blessings. Pray for your kids' spouses and their future spouses. I mean, pray even if your kids are grown and pray not just when there's a crisis, but have that as a regular part. Because when it's on the mind of, of God, before God, then that's when it's really in your heart as well. And the second thing I would say is this, is, is to lead. And I mean lead by example. Don't just lead outside in the workplace and then come home and just kind of take a, a playoff. I'm talking about leading at home. That's being engaged at home, uh, being in the game at home. I, I remember this, I saw this when I was growing up with my own parents and I saw them lead by example. I would get up early sometimes in the middle of the night. It just was the middle of the night to me, but my dad, he was already getting up for work at 5 a.m. in the morning. And I would walk out sometimes and, and I would hear stuff going on and and in the middle of the night to me, my dad is up early, like an hour and a half, two hours early. He's got worship music playing. He's praying. I, I remember so many times I would wake up and I would sneak in and he didn't even know I was watching, but he'd be walking around and he'd be praying before God. He'd be worshiping before God. He'd have his Bible out and he's got a cup of coffee in the Bible. And I saw this happen so many times. Lead by example. Do you realize that, that uh, the, I'm just going to be real straight with you right now. The reason a lot of kids don't want to go from home to church, especially in their teenage years and later teenage years, they don't want to go from home to church is because they haven't seen a lot of church happening at home. And when you go home, you are still the body of Christ. And you are the body of Christ just represented right there in your family. And so I want to encourage you that if that's not happening right now, here's the good news. Today can be the day that it starts. And so just in closing, I just want to remind you this. Just ask yourself this question. Am I promoting a product that I don't use? Because if it ain't happening at home, it really isn't happening. And so today you may be here and you may be convicted about things in your life or your relationship, maybe your family. And this is not a message of condemnation. This is a message of encouragement today. I, and if family is supposed to be a picture of God's story, 
then if, if you find your family's maybe a little messy right now, then allow God's story to happen. Put God in the story of your family right now and let there be an opportunity for grace to happen. Grace towards your family, grace towards your kids, grace towards your spouse, but even grace towards you. Let that happen. It's the perfect opportunity to let God be in that mess and let him begin to work. Because here again, here's the good news. God always starts with where you are today right now. That's what God did in Joseph's story. We talked about that at Jacob and Joseph and that whole mess. God always started right there and he took all of those years that were bad and in one moment he turned it around for good and that's my hope and that's my prayer for us today. So let me pray for you and then we'll, we'll worship one more time. God, we thank you so much for what you're doing in our families. Lord, even if it doesn't look like it right now, even if it looks like a mess, we thank you that you are still moving. We trust your hand moving in our families by faith. And I pray for every single person here as we wrestle with these issues today. And some of them were pretty tough. Let your conviction of the Holy Spirit come into our heart, produce fruit, and let the result of that fruit be joy in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.